0: Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Austin Ye and. And my, what's going on, everyone? Austin, you saw your flip yet? <laughs> no, no, not yet. So we did a. Yeah, distress seller. Distress seller. <laughs> when we last chatted, we did a price reduction. Oh, you did? Yeah. So we were at 1.125 right now. Uh, what we're going to do is. So we're a little bit all over the place in strategy, to be quite frank. We're seeing what works. The main important thing is getting bodies in the door with any showing. You're not going to get offers if you don't have people going through your property. So we're going to underlist it and then see what happens. The bidding war strategy is not as attractive in the current market, right? Like people are really listing for what they're looking for and their their expectations. The difficult part is is that we don't want the listing to stay stale for too long. So we want to get as many bodies in there. And then try to generate an offer. Our staging is coming due, I think, in the next week or so. And then it's about $500 every week after that to maintain the staging. So we wanted to make the most out of it and get as many bodies as we can through the property. What do you think? Maybe cut to like 999 or? Yeah, it's listed at 999 right now. I should. I had a conversation with someone. um, You know what? Actually, at 999, technically speaking, if there were no realtor fees, that would be like pretty much break even. <laughs> so it's not terrible, but there's like, you know, there's all of these other fees you have yeah, yeah. to consider when you sell. And man, th- that that is a lot of money in realtor <laughs> fees that go out. But nonetheless, anyway, so sort of where I was going, I was I was speaking with someone and we had a conversation about flipping. And one of the things that I'm sort of grateful for is I didn't put in more than I've made to lose, right? So you see fix and flippers basically lose everything that they have or very close to it. Obviously a loss is not great or fantastic by any means, but let's say hypothetically speaking, I was having this conversation with someone that I basically lose all the money I put into it. Right. Let's say hypothetically like down payment, reno, so on and so forth. That would mean I would have to sell it with a seven in front of it, which is never going to happen. You Never know. in any world <laughs> is yeah. not gonna go for something in the 700. So I'm gonna
1: throw in an offer this week and you won't even know it's me, 750. So <laughs>
0: yeah, you know if you're lucky, if I'm really motivated, you'll <laughs> see my throat. If I sign it, you'll be like, yo, yeah, is Austin really struggling that much then? Well <laughs> yeah, no, that that's the main thing there, right? Is is that it's not ideal, but it's something that won't necessarily keep me up at night. Like what keeps you I up at night is when you feel like you're gonna lose everything, which is, you know, like not the case. Yeah, it's people that essentially just take on
1: a bunch of flips at the same time, lever lever to the top, right? Yeah. I also think like you, you got a really good price. It's it's really these transaction fees, man, that are like double land transfer tax, realtor fees, closing costs, like all that kind of stuff. That like it's it's significant, especially in the price point that you're at. They start to add up. Like a hundred K at a million dollars is different from a hundred K on like two hundred grand, right? So
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and my other flip is listed up too, the one in uh, Sudbury. So we're having yeah. another showing today. We'll see how that one goes. The market's a little bit slower at the moment, but it's the best value that's out there at the moment. Like, I just try to make sure that even if listings are sort of sitting, that mine is going to be the one that stands out because it's renovated. Yeah. And it's cheaper than unrenovated properties around the area, which this one sort of ticks off. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Our cottage yeah. is listed as well. I'd say it's the same thing. Decent, like, decent turnout for the, we just listed it I think, earlier this week. Decent turnout. Not too much in the way of feedback. People are slow moving. No one's really moving, but it's it's also rented out every single friggin' weekend in all of October, uh, up to, I think, third week of October or something that's rented out. And I have November on with blocks. I'm kind of like, shit, now I guess I got to start releasing November because I was really hoping this thing would
0: sell. But <laughs> uh, It is. Yeah. Yeah. Are you guys willing? I mean, you're not willing to sell it at a haircut as well, right? Like you guys want to at least make a little bit of money on this thing. Fuck, I I would, but my partner, I, I don't I don't want to put him. Yeah, in I, I think mine and your mentality is a little bit different. I mean, no, yeah. uh, the same, a lot of the same. Yeah, 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 It's like everything is cost of doing business. It's weird because you know that I'm like a frugal guy, but when it comes <laughs> to cost of doing business, I sort of shake it off. It's like it is what it is. <laughs> yeah, you know, like it happens. You make, you lose. It it is what it is. Mm-hmm. So I don't dwell on those sort of decisions. I mean, if it means that, like the fucking market dictates that there's going to be a little bit of a loss, then you just sort of take it on the chin and you move on. But I know not everyone's sort of a similar position. Yeah. I think where it's listed right now, we have
1: like a close to, if not like a six figure profit. So we have a long way to kind of come down, but cottage energy usually transact like a little bit below list, right? So, so that's at least what we're seeing. So, we'll, you know, we're kind of waiting to see what the offer is coming at. We're listed in the sixes. Anything that's with a seven in front of it is usually staying on the market. But in the sixes, it's moving. It's just moving a little bit below list. So, I don't know. Let's wait and see what happens. We just listed. I really want to move this thing, man. I'm done. I don't want to fucking go to cottage. <laughs> <laughs> you know,
0: most people's dream is to own a cottage and it's funny. Nah, I, nah. I, they're just literally looking at it as an investment.
1: Again, reverse into that shit. Cause that shit pack, bro. <laughs> I'm motivated. <laughs>
0: Okay, so real quick on my end thing, another thing I wanted to bring up is a couple of non payments and dealing with that. Like I, I posted it on my story. I'm not as active on my story. I'm sorry, guys. I've been taking a little bit of a social media hiatus. I always dude, like I, I go hard and then I just take a freaking three month hiatus after yeah. that. I'm on that mode right now. But uh one thing that I wanted to share is a couple non payment of brands. And I've noticed that the majority of them, if not maybe all of them. No, it is every single one of them are in trades. Okay. So let me, let me break this down for you. One of the people that is slightly under market grants, they are about 4,000 behind. They're in the trades. Spoke with them. They were ignoring the calls, got a hold of them. They're going to make everything by next week. So You're that's, that's sort of, that's what they're saying. They got a new sort of job, like as a driver. So they're doing truck driving instead now. And their wages are pretty good there. They showed the proof. So we'll see what happens. So that's good. Another one also in the trades, they're a roofer. Businesses slowed down, and as a result, they fell behind. Another person is an entrepreneur in the trades, newer again, um, and they've been struggling since day one, but have since caught up. There was one more person, but they work in the mines, which is interesting. Mines, they should be making more than enough money. But nonetheless, like of all the sample size of the non-payments, they're all in the trades, and these are like Northern Ontario, right? So just... Puts things into perspective. Yes, things could be booming in a big city, but in these smaller cities, a, a lot of them are investor demand. <laughs> Keep their business flowing. This is Sudbury or North Bay or two or? Where? Yeah, yes. It's uh, Northern Ontario. So Sudbury and one of them's in a like Warren, but all all Very North. Very interesting. I've got uh, uh, one guy not paying rent, but to be honest,
1: he's at $600 a month. I'm like, okay, like if you don't want to pay rent, you know, but I just got to have this conversation with it, which I've been uh, kicking down down the road, but got to get up there and kind of get him out or figure something out. Is that one in Kirkland or where's that? No, this is one in Sudbury. It's, a, it's the seven unit we bought. The problem is that the order, they went through the LTB with them already. He, he, was, he wasn't paying rent for a while. And so we were waiting for the order, but I think the order went to the previous, I think gone to the previous seller or the property manager, I'm not sure. And both aren't giving it to us they not responding. So now we're, I'm just kind of going bluff.
0: <laughs> so let's see. You have to put the order in again as well. Yeah, exactly. Right? It, worst comes to worst is just waiting it out. And he's giving you a reason to honestly evict at this point. Yeah. When you're losing out on time, either way, you're probably going to pay him cash for keys to debt. Yeah, 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 exactly. So we'll see. We'll see how that goes. Okay. Awesome. Um, I think that's enough from us today. We're going to jump straight into the podcast we have. Mr. Mark Baltazar, I'm sure many of you are already familiar with his name. He has a multifamily podcast. I think one of the few multifamily podcasts in Canadian real estate, if you haven't checked that out already, link is in the bio down below. But he's a super impressive investor starting off investing in in smaller projects, working in consulting full-time, and then eventually transitioning full-time Blown to the multifamily space, starting his own fund as well, which has been doing extremely well. We get into so many interesting topics, including multifamily investing in today's market. So we try to keep it as relevant as possible. What interest rates are doing to multifamily investors, interesting strategies they're doing, potential headwinds in that area, potential opportunities in that area, and so much more. So if you guys considered multifamily investing, especially in today's market, You can't miss this episode out. Hope you guys enjoy. And if you do enjoy the podcast, five-star review, sure, with a friend, let's jump right on in. Hello, everyone. We are joined with our very special guest, Mr. Mark Baltazar. Mark, how's everything going? Excellent, guys. Thanks for having me on. For sure. I'm
1: surprised we haven't had you on all this time, but Mark, for anyone that might not know you, You're obviously very well known out there in the real estate community, but for anyone that might not know you, why don't you give everyone a quick background on yourself. We always love hearing how you got started, like real estate investing and then kind of just timeline, you know, what led
2: you to where you are today. Cool. So what I wanted to be when I grew up actually was a consultant. And so I was was actually a management consultant for 15 years, more, probably more than that, Uh, just over 15 years. I started that journey in a corporation where we worked in like a small like kind of internal consulting group. We had McKinsey kind of work with us. It was really cool to be exposed to McKinsey fairly early on in my career. And then some of the senior guys at the corporation left, started a firm, and then I joined as employee number three in 2005. I guess it was or so. Yeah, 2005, 2004, 2005. Management consulting, good. You know, it was cool. I loved it. Analytical, statistical modeling. That's kind of what I did. Media, marketing, worked with some big companies, which was fun. But consulting is draining, right? Like it's really draining. I was traveling a lot, which was fun in the beginning. And then it kind of gets, it takes its toll. And in and around, I guess, 2010 or so, my wife and I kind of started talking a little bit more about real estate investing and that we're going to do it one day and we're going to get rental properties. And it took five years to do anything. Right. So it was kind of like just procrastinated, you know, Hey, next year, next year, next year, next year became five years. And then finally it was like, okay, enough's enough. Let me start educating myself. So I started educating myself probably 2013 and 14 joined rain real estate investment network. You know, Don Campbell was really the main reason why I joined that just in terms of his knowledge and expertise, learn, learn, the economics of real estate investing, kind of the foundation, know, components to investing, and then started flipping in 2015, and uh, which was cool. I mean, it's just super active, like super hands-on. At that time, I was also investing in a fund as well. I invested in a multifamily fund just to kind of get exposure to multifamily, and then acquired my first apartment buildings in 2017 with my partner today, Mike, and then we kind of grew a little bit more and bought a few more buildings over the years some on our own, some with investor partners. And yeah, that was the beginning. Going to be a lot to dive into today. That's like a very humble life.
1: He's very humble about it, (laughs) but acquired quite a few sizable buildings for anyone that
0: doesn't know in our audience. So uh, yeah, you're about 40 million assets under management. (laughs) So, you know, pretty big. (laughs) Okay, so real quick here, you mentioned that you had a five-year hiatus before you got into real estate investing and you've always considered it but you never jumped into it right away. Is part of that because you were in management consulting, being so analytical, did you feel like you had um analysis paralysis, or was that not the case? What took you so long to jump into investing? Because a lot of people are in the exact same shoes as
2: you were in the past, like considering it, but they just never make the first move. Yeah, I think it's probably not one answer. It's probably a component of all those things. So I had a friend early on, successful guy. We didn't go to school together, but we went to similar or high schools that were close. And I think at 24 years old, 23, he had four rental properties, duplexes. And his name's Gary. And you know, I said, Gary, how do how like how is that possible? Like, you know, I'm 24, 23, you can barely buy my own house. So he showed me, here's how you do it. Right. And it's kind of you buy it, you refinance all so the stuff that we're doing today. And so I had the steps. Did I overanalyze? Maybe, maybe a little bit. I think it's you know, the first time you kind of just overanalyze you, but I think it was less about over uh, being over analytical or more just about complacency and income was good. There was always, Hey, I'm still young. I got lots of time to catch up, which is, I think I did a day. Everyone has lots of time to catch up to some degree. It's, you're never too old to start, never too young to start either. So I think it was just that it was just next year, you know, complacent. And you know what? Also, it wasn't a goal. Like I didn't write it down. It wasn't something that I was like, I'm going to do by date X, right? So it wasn't a commitment. My wife and I, we didn't make that commitment to each other to say, we're going to do it by this time. It was just a loosely floating, was it a goal? I don't even know if it's a goal because a goal, you're you're kind of objective, have a date. You kind of like, you're more stern about achieving it it was just a thought in the head. Like my parents had a rental property. My grandparents rented their own property, downtown Toronto, super amazing location. So it's not that I wasn't exposed to it, not an exposed to it in the business way. It's more of a side hustle for my grandparents and my parents, but it just, you know, we didn't commit. We didn't commit to say we're doing it by X. And I think that's, you know, if someone has this idea in their head that they want to move forward with something, you just got to commit, commit and commit means I am going to do it by certain date. Here's the date I'm going to do it by. And the reason why I'm going to do it is because it's going to improve my financial wealth. Whatever the reason is, we didn't have any of that. We just kind of thought rental properties. That's kind of a cool idea. And we just weren't serious about pegging it as a goal, as a future vision. So I'm curious, when you eventually did get serious
1: about it in 2013, 2014, and you bought your first one in 2015, what changed? And I'll give you an example. Like for me, I got laid off in 2018. And after that, I was like, that's it. I'm going to make this thing happen. And I'm just curious, like, was there a changing moment? Everyone's got a different journey. Yeah.
2: So for me, it was a combination, I think, of the management consulting life that I was living. I was a part of the firm. So it's not like I was reporting to anyone, right? So I did have some liberties, but it's also, I was, uh, I want to say handcuffed. I wasn't a slave to my clients. So I had to perform for my clients. And so I was traveling a lot, young kids at the time, you know, it's still young, but the thing that went off for me was when they would ask me, you know, consecutively, dad, are you going to be home for dinner? And the answer was usually no, right? I'll be home at seven, I'll be home at eight, I'll be home at whatever. And that's because I was either traveling or I was in the office till eight or nine o'clock. And our office was in Toronto, at a few different kind of locations over the course of 15 years, but it was downtown Toronto essentially, right? So it wasn't an easy drive for me. That started to kind of be painful, And towards the end of my my stay there, so I ended up selling my shares early 2020. Towards the end, I'd say a year and a half to two years before I left, I did adjust how I worked. I was working more from home because my commute was an hour and a half there and back. And during the kind of the time where I was really thinking about exiting, it was podcast central all day long. Like that's how I was learning real estate. Lots of podcasts, just listening to it, learning stuff. I felt like I was missing out on what my kids were doing. And it was like, for what? And so what I felt was like, okay, can I do something else on my own again? Real estate seems to be possible. Let's do that. I was learning from, you know, getting real estate investment network, so I kind of how to do it. And that's really what got me there. That's what I guess forced me, or at least was the impetus for me to kind of move along and kind of figure out something else. Before we jump straight
0: into the commercial property stuff, I wanted to make a point on on something that you mentioned before. It's pretty tough coming from a career like management consultant, investment banking, or high paying jobs to find something to do on the side. Because the reality is, is that the active income that a lot of side hustles have is never going to match your salary that you're getting from these positions. And so you have to find something just as lucrative or more upside potential, which for you, Was real estate, and I imagine when you started investing, you probably weren't making as much as you were from your full time job. It had to take a while before you hit that point and surpassed it. So I just wanted to make that point out there to the audience that you don't jump into it and just start making hundreds of thousands. You work your way up there, and then you slowly scale and start doing bigger things. So you mentioning you were doing flips when you were investing. I imagine you did a couple of small projects. I almost want to jump into what was the decision to get into bigger apartment buildings and what was the due diligence thought process mindset that you needed to get into these bigger buildings? Yeah. So
2: during the early stages, during kind of times of the flip, you know, I had a couple of duplexes. The largest I had was a fourplex in Aurelia. And so I was familiar with the rental properties, but also very familiar with the painful valuation process of residential real estate, right? Comparable approach coming from my business background. Uh, statistics, analytical, helping other companies. It was really about you have a little bit more control over the values of your business, especially in marketing, you spend X, you get X out on the other side if you do it properly. So there was this relationship between what you put in and what you get out on the value side. And I didn't really see that in residential. And for me, it was, it's more of a business. It's more about the finances, more about the financials, right? And it's not a hundred percent that way. And even residential, for sure, if you add another unit, you're going to get more value, right? But, you know, the equations there, it just seemed to be a little bit more direct for me at the time for commercial. And I like that. I like the fact that you could improve net operating income by a certain amount and pretty closely predict what that's going to do for you on the other side, right? 20X, 25X, 15X, depending on what market you're in. It wasn't really about mortgage qualification or anything like that. I know some people move into that because of mortgage qualification. Now it's helpful, of course, right? Because, you know, I don't have the management consulting job anymore, you know, as of like almost four years now, but it was really about scale, about scale and being able to have a more predictable way to grow value. And I just found that commercial real estate was just a little bit more predictable in terms of what you put in and what you get out on the other side. Interesting. So I think that's a business case for but
1: like, how did you essentially jump into your first one? Right. Cause I think the first is usually the hardest and then it's just about scaling from there. So I'm curious what that process was like for you jumping into your first one, what it was, where it was, price, capital,
2: all that. Yeah. Okay. So the first one is in Hamilton, two side-by-side, seven units, 14 units in total, they're right beside each other. So Mike and another partner that I was doing flips with, we looked for probability Maybe a year, maybe twelve months, right? And we really at that time didn't really know what kind of what we were doing. To be honest, like we you know had a little bit of guidance, but we didn't really know what was good building. We also didn't have the connections. It was all about MLS, right? MLS is not a good place to source deals because it is because we bought buildings off MLS. It doesn't really matter where you get it from, but it was all MLS for us and. The three of us pulled capital together. We try to raise money for it. That was really difficult because the investors that I had on flips, I, I did raise money on flips, they were used to something different quicker turns of money. Multifamily isn't that quick. You know, the market at that time wasn't really conducive to like 12 month burrs or 18 month burrs, right? And when was this? 2017. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, 2017. So it was difficult. Because even closing, trying to scrape together you know money, showing you know accounts or RSP accounts with with capital, was the first time going through it, very familiar with residential qualifications, but not familiar with commercial. The other thing, I had worked with a mortgage broker for probably 30-flip deals and refinances into buy and holds. That was not familiar with commercial. And very transparently, he said, "Listen, I've only done three of these types of deals. I kind of know, but don't know, worked with them. The deal we got wasn't bad. It just wasn't optimal for commercial. And uh, so it was kind of three guys just trying to figure out how to do it, right? Not really knowing what the right steps were. we We'd bought properties before, not commercial. And so we may do. I mean, um, you know we may do. The biggest part was coming up with the capital, right? Maybe we had some capital that you know came you know for me personally from flips. Each one kind of had their own kind of source of capital, used some line of credit money. And we got it done. I think afterwards we did bring on some investors for some equity afterwards, but very little. And um, yeah, the first one is going to be tough. I wish at that time we had someone to lean on a little bit more actually, in terms of that had done a bunch, Hey guys, use this person, do this, structure it this way. Here's how you should do your corpse. We didn't really have any of that. I had taken a course, like how to underwrite and analyze, but didn't really have anyone to kind of and it tell me to do X versus Y during the whole process, which I think, again, I think we would have probably bought six months sooner if we had someone to lean on kind of weekly or daily. Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, there's a couple of different directions that we can take this. And we want to get into the current market environment as well. But actually, let's use relevant examples here. So I almost want to talk about deal flow, how you're getting deal flow nowadays, move yeah. on to how you're underwriting these deals, like your due diligence, pro formas and then how you're financing and then turning around. Like it's almost like multiple steps with these multifamilies. Nowadays, interest rate is high. We're seeing a lot of multifamilies sit on the market. Are you MLS heavy? Are you getting pocket listings? What is your main sort of deal source in, in current market environment?
2: So deal source is mainly, yeah, pocket listings and commercial brokers. Again, not against MLS at all. We'll look at MLS, no problem, right? It's, there might be a little bit more competition. You, you may be dealing with brokers that aren't commercial focused, right? So it's kind of a little bit of kind of almost have to educate them a little bit as well. Not always, but um, again, like I said, out of ten buildings, we bought two on MLS, right? So twenty percent of buildings are on MLS. It's more about relationships in the, the brokerage network, right? That people that specialize in commercial that know we're buying that we bought, right? I think that's the difference between commercial and residential, at least multifamily. I can't speak to other commercial assets. I'm not sure, but I would imagine it's very similar, is that it becomes a relationship game, right? The broker knows what you want. They also know that you have a track record, that you can close, that if you raise your hand and say, hey, I would like to look at a building, what do you guys have? That you're ready, right? It's less about tire kicking. I think at that, as a tire kicker, Kicker, you'll kind of get kicked out of the circle pretty quickly. Right. So that's kind of where most of our deals come with. We, you know, we experimented with direct-to-seller stuff, and that's a long tail game, right? It's a long tail game. We do have one deal by one deal direct-to-seller, but the brokerage network is really kind of where we find most of our stuff. Do you
0: find that the information provided by the realtors are always accurate or truthful? Because in the game of multifamily, when people provide you financials, conveniently, a lot of things are missing from it. And if so, how do you go about renegotiating with the realtors? Because that that's a problematic conversation. One person will look at something one way, you're looking at it a different way, but you want to maintain your relationship. Like how do you go about yeah. having negotiations And just to
1: add on, add on to what I also was saying there, because the tire taker comment, Like, I, I get that. Because I think half the time, sometimes I'll be talking to a realtor and I'll tell them exactly what I want. And they'll come back to me with something that like looks good on paper, but really once you start digging answer it, it's like, yeah, hey, you know, this deal doesn't actually check out and you can't help, but feeling like you wasted their time and you're like burning a bridge or something like that. So obviously you went through 12 months of deal hunting before you guys find your first one. And I'm sure today it's even more difficult than it was back then. So I'm just curious the relationship side there.
2: Yeah. So that's so think two part question, right? So the question that you just asked about accuracy of information, just on a coaching call with one of my coaching clients yesterday, exact same question. Okay. It's a question that often gets asked. And here's been my experience. My experience is that the information has always been accurate actually, right? I've rarely seen inaccurate information and here's why. Now let's not confuse accuracy with things that are missing line items, right? So that those are two different things. If someone tells me taxes are twenty-eight thousand or 30,000, they're probably going to be 30,000, right? If someone says Hydra's is 5,500, it's probably going to be 5,500. There's no reason for a broker, someone selling or an agent selling to give you inaccurate information because they're wasting your time. They're wasting their time. Because if you put an offer in based on that information, you still have a due diligence period. You have the 30 to 45 business day or whatever it is, you're going to get the actual invoices. And then at some point, you're going to say, Hey, these are not the same. And now you just wasted everybody's time. So I haven't really experienced inaccurate information, to be honest. What you might see, though, this happens often, especially if the seller is, let's say, a mom and pop seller, not a professional asset management firm or whatever. You might have all your utilities, your taxes, your insurance, and they may not give you, because they they generally don't have one, a line item for uh, property management. They might not have a line item for repairs and maintenance, and they might not have like a resident manager or something like that because they do it on their own. They're not calculating that. So underwriting is a super important skill, obviously, in this. right. Whether you're passive or active, underwriting is super critical. As an underwriter, you can give me what you want. As long as I have uh, taxes, insurance, and utilities, and income, and I'm assuming it's accurate, I'm going to put in my own property management, resident manager fee, and repairs and maintenance as a ratio, because I know that that's what the lender is going to do. And actually, even if they did have a property management, if they give you a property management number and it was 12% for some reason, I'm not going to use 12%, I'll probably use four or 5%, right? Mm -hmm. So um, in my underwrite, I'm going to use kind of what lenders or appraisers typically use to get my number, right? To understand what the true value of it is. So yeah, it's in no one's best interest to give you inaccurate information because they're wasting their own time, right? So I haven't experienced that. Got it. So I'm curious, and when you're going through your underwriting, like, so so I think
1: you outlined property manager four to five percent, I think is what you said. What are some of the assumptions that you're making when
0: you're underwriting these larger multifamily? And, and just to make one more thing to add on there, <laughs> when you make these assumptions, are these how the appraiser is going to look at it or how the lender looks at it? Because lenders look mm-hmm. at the underwriting it's much different, different than yeah. appraisers a lot
2: of the time as well. Um, it's yeah, it's going to be. They're both they're very similar. They're they're very very similar. So, for example, let's say repairs and maintenance. Repairs and maintenance will be like eight hundred and fifty bucks, eight hundred and fifty bucks per unit per year. Resident manager probably about four hundred dollars per unit per year. Uh, Property management four or five percent. I typically use four right, but it could go up to five. CMHC is going to have their own. So if you're underwriting and going to CMAC, they're going to have their own assumptions as well, which is very close to that. They just changed it. I think repairs and maintenance has gone up to 900. Uh, resident manager, it might still be 400. Maybe it's gone up to 450. They buffered it a little bit just to kind of mitigate their risk. They'll also put like a 1% miscellaneous and their vacancy rate will be based on, like it's not true vacancy, right? Because a lot of places right now, true vacant, like real vacancies, is almost zero. Right. You know, if you don't account for turnovers, they'll put in like 3%. So you can kind of get the CMHC number. So those are the numbers that I would use, regardless of what the seller gives me. Like if the seller gives me snow removal, lawn maintenance, and pest control, I don't really take those numbers and plug those in. now I might look at it. Oh, pest control. Holy smokes. That's a lot. Pest control. That's a high amount. It's a high invoice or it's a big expense item. What's happening in that building? That might give other clues. But from an underwriting standpoint, I just use the standard numbers to, kind of normalize the model. Okay. It seems like you're using predominantly then like CMHC's assumptions
1: and you're kind of factoring that in. So, and I know you guys are operating now in in a larger, larger, like multifamily space as well, right? But I guess in your opinion, is the traditional model of like commercial investing just kind of like you have to leverage CMHC. Is that kind of the model that makes the most sense today? Or is there, I don't know, space to, to kind of not go down that avenue? Like what are the strategies that you're seeing? Is it more so buy and hold for the long-term? Are people still burying? Or is it just buy, refinance into CMHC? Just curious what you're seeing as like, because you're also a realtor, I believe, right? As a realtor and a owner and um, asset investor and stuff like that. So.
2: So yeah, I do have my license. I help primarily people with buildings, kind of you know, find or kind of broker those deals. So yeah, the strategy. Okay. So CMHC is way more appealing right now because of interest rates, right? Because the biggest difference between CMHC insured financing and conventional is the amortization. A little bit on the rate as well. So the rate will come down a little bit insured. So lenders are willing to kind of reduce that just because there's just default protection via CMHC. But the big thing is you're stretching out your amortization. So most are going to CMHC. Now, so bridging, you know, you can still bridge, right? So for example, so if you're buying a value add building, let's say the average rents are $1,000 today, but they really should be, if they're optimized, maybe 2,200 or 2,000 or whatever. a so that's a massive gap, $1,000 per unit gap. It's a shame, I think, to go into CMHC with that building as is, right? So you could still bridge, you know, their interest rates are higher, right? Interest only, right? You're going to be in your eight to 10%, which is expensive. If there's a clear path to CMHC, right? So if you can turn some units, right, and then kind of get it to CMHC at at a higher income level, then for sure it still works. I think there's, you know, you got to be a little more cautious right now in terms of taking on these bridge mortgages because the number of units you can turn may not be as high as they were 12 months ago or 18 months ago. The turn rates have slowed right? It's more expensive for someone to move out of their current unit to something else, right? So people aren't moving as much because of that. And so you have to build that into your assumptions. And lenders will also take a look. Like if you go to a lender or 20 unit building and say, yeah, I'm going to turn you know, 90% of my building in 12 months, they're not going to, they're just going to say, it's impossible unless you're already vacant mm-hmm. for some, right? So they're going to torture test that model for you. You know What bridge lenders are looking for is, at the end of the 12 months or 24 months, will CMHC take me out, like take out that first debt and how much income is required for that to happen? That's what they're checking. Okay. The other thing that's happening right now, just in terms of the current environment is interest reserves, right? So an interest reserve is basically where as the borrower, you're paying essentially upfront for the interest for that year, six months, 12 months, 24 months, whatever. And that's on that again, to protect the lender as well. These extra risk mitigating strategies that they're using just to protect themselves. Mm-hmm.
0: So very interesting point you made there about turnaround. And that's sort of what I wanted to get into. When running, let's say you get something under contract, a building under contract, what type of due diligence do you do on the bill? Like, are you looking at like a 70s build? I know some people don't touch a 100-year-old plus buildings. Are you looking at separate meters? Are you looking at specific tenant quality as well? Are you looking at vacancies? What is that due diligence uh, like? And how do you also get, I mean, I can ask this later, but I'll just throw it in here now. How do you also get comfort around the tenant turnaround number? Because I think that's the biggest fear
2: for most people, including myself. Yeah. Let's say, you you know, you've been building under contract and you're putting it under contract. You have not accepted offer now because you run your financials you may or may not have gone through the building at this point. Who knows? Depends on what the seller kind of wants to do. You'll see you haven't, you've just done it on financials. Now your due diligence period starts 30 business days, 45 business days, 60 business days, whatever you can negotiate. Aside from environmental building condition assessment and and getting an appraisal done, right? You're also walking through the building, right? So one of the things we do kind of see what the tenant profile is, that gives us an idea of what our turn rate may be, right? What's the probability that we're going to turn X a number of units? I can tell you that today versus 18 months ago, our turn rate assumptions are drastically lower, right? We're just trying to close on a building right now where our turn rate hit 17 units. I think we're planning on turning seven or eight units in five years. So why, why is that? I know you mentioned that a little, a
1: couple of minutes ago as well, but.
2: Yeah, because, okay. So for someone to move out of the building that you've acquired, basically they're moving for whatever you right? But well, let's say they're paying $1,000 because rents continue to grow so significantly specifically in Ontario. And I know it's happening across the country, but I'll talk about Ontario. They now have to move from that place and go pay somewhere else, 1,700, right? An extra $700 per month. So the likelihood that they're going to do that, even with cash for keys, is the likelihood is lower than it was 18 months ago. Because the gap wasn't as large. Right. So the Delta keeps growing. Yeah. And it's, I feel like it's also more and more
0: obvious. Like tenants are now more and more knowledgeable. And- it's all over the media, yeah. right? Like this is on news. You go on Twitter, you go on Instagram, you go anywhere. And that is always front page news. That's what drives the most click. So people yeah. are more aware, right? And people are less <laughs> like you can throw people 20. And I've, I've had conversations, not saying that I throw someone 20,000, but if the math works, it does. Can yeah. throw someone a blank check, and sometimes they know what they have, and it's not a matter of what you're offering them; it's a matter of whether they even want to leave or not to begin with. And and, yeah. and the cash may not even be a concern yes. at all. Yeah. Um,
2: but sorry, sorry to interrupt. Can <laughs> continue yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah. So so you know, part of the walkthrough is see who's there, right? Like you know, certain tenant profiles we know are not going to move, right? Like typically, you know, older tenants, single males that are a little bit older they're not going to move. Younger couples might, right? Definitely a little bit more mobile, a little bit more willing to move, flexible, or they might move. They might be kind of on the way out anyway. So at least they know they're going to be, or we typically have an idea that they're going to be out within the next two to three years. Cash for keys, you know, incentivizing people with financial incentives could work. But again, if you give, so let's use that example. If you give someone twenty thousand dollars, how long is that twenty thousand dollars going to last when they have to pay an extra seven hundred dollars per month or a thousand dollars a month in a new place? So because of that, when we're underwriting, our turn ratio is way lower and also stretched out over a longer period of time. Right now, I know there's operators that underwrite with like eighty percent turns in twelve months or two or two years, which is If you can do that, awesome, home run, right? We would never underwrite like that. It's just too risky. It puts too much pressure on the system. Like it's just way too. And if you don't hit it, so so if you don't hit that, you can't take out your first mortgage. That's the issue, right? So it looks great on paper, and it looks great on Excel because you can just change those numbers. But executing on a strategy with turn rates like Pat is really tough. Now, unless the building has significant amount of vacancies, sure, that's that's a different story. But like to actually turn over units, it's harder.
0: Yeah. So to that point, definitely a lot more challenging. And, and you were mentioning that you're looking at five-year sort of outlook when you underwrite these properties. That being said, it's pretty capital intensive, right? These bridge loans, as you were mentioning, they're about 12 months. I don't know. You would probably know better than me, but I would be hard-pressed to imagine a bridge loan for five years. What's your capital stack like? Are you raising them uh, most of it in equity are you raising a lot in debt private money like how's that sort of breakdown and how does that impact sort of cash flow in the short term
2: as well yeah so you know seventy to seventy five percent loan to value on purchases with a bridge right the rest is typically equity sometimes we'll put renovation financing on there as well just to kind of have a backup plan you're you're paying for it though right you're paying one let's say one percent let's say bridge lender will likely charge 1%, right? Of the amount. So if you're adding renovation financing on there, which basically gets, it's also almost like a line of credit kind of thing, right? Like you're, you have it there accessible if you need it, um, but you're paying for that access, right? So that's how typically we layer, you know, that's the capital stack, essentially. You don't want to be in those bridge loans too long, right? So that's why the way we are looking at deals now, Now prices have come down a little bit in the multifamily space. So it is making a little bit more kind of um, appetizing to kind of get into buildings with higher interest rates. We're just underwriting with a much lower turn rate. And so the buildings that will pass over, it's going to be more, right? So we just have to go through more to bought. Right. And so on that topic, like what really makes something a good deal
1: for you guys now? Is it because obviously you have the fund as well, right? But is it going to come down to like an ROI? Is it going to be kind of the cash that's that investment in the deal? Because these funds likely have a um, like a lifespan on them as well, I'm assuming, right? So is it going to come down to how much cash is left in the deal? IRR, like what's the metric that you guys are evaluating? Like the, the final conclusion, everything comes down to it's probably this one or two metrics, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. We're not looking to, you know, get all of our money out at all on refinances. Like I think those days are gone. <laughs> Right, like it's tough. Some capital out on a refinance would be great, but that's not really the name of the game for us. It's kind of long term hold and appreciation, right? So, and our our investors know that. I mean, in the fund, doesn't matter so much, right? It's really about kind of value appreciation, a little bit of cash flow. We do play distribution, so we do have to monitor which buildings are at which stage of financing, right? Those that are in CMHC are spitting out cash. Those that are bridge or not? They're eating cash, right? So it's got to be a good balance, but. We've never really promoted the, you know, get 100% of your money out and kind of stay in. It's, it's, it's how we've done it. We have done it, but we've never promised it just because it's a hard thing to do. And when we do it, great, it's a bonus. But our investors are kind of more, they have other sources of income typically. And so they're not relying upon this income kind of to live. It's, it really is an investment. And when we can recycle money, it's great. But also, we set the expectation that. You could get ten percent back, twenty percent back on on single deal investments, and so what it does it, it allows us to speak to certain investors, you know, that have other sources that are professionals that are just looking to put away their capital to kind of grow and appreciate. The fund is different. They, the fund does pay a distribution, but most people are kind of going into the fund with TFSA's or RSPs or registered funds, and so the distribution that the fund provides typically just gets reinvested, you it know, anyways. Right. Because that essentially means you're in it for a long period of time. It's a different type
1: of capital that people are allocating towards the fund that makes sense. Yeah. On the fund topic, because I don't know if we've ever had someone on the podcast that's had a fund. Maybe we have, but I'm just curious, like, Hey, what was the decision to to move towards the fund model? What is the process like? Because I feel like we've heard of more, a few people entering the space and everyone's just, I think, curious about like, what's, what's the inner working behind the fund? Like, how does it work? Like, you know, just kind of the business behind it. Yeah. Curious what your thoughts are there and
2: what kind of experience you guys have had. It wasn't a quick decision for sure. It's something that um, Mike and I had contemplated for a long time, a long time, I mean, a long time being, you know, 12 months at least. Right. So it was, again, actually kind of learning back from my experience of, you know, delaying investing in real estate for five years. Right. We talked about this, the fund for probably 12 months. Should we do it? Should we not? Should we do it? Should we not? And then found that we were kind of going in circles a little bit with that discussion. And then we both just decided, okay, let's give ourselves the next 30 days and really just talk to people we need to talk to. So we hired a consultant to to help us answer the question, is this right for us? Let's kind of go through the pros and cons. Let's kind of get a different perspective. We talked friends in the space that had funds kind of for over 10 years or so pros and cons. And we gave ourselves a deadline to decide, okay, by this date, we're either going to do it or not going to do it. Either way is good. We're just going to decide that way. That decision is gone. We ended up deciding to do it, obviously. The reason why uh, was a scale, right, a scale. So we're you know we're looking to grow to about 120 to $130 million by 2026, in the next three and a half years or so. And we felt that the fund route and capital through the fund would allow us to get there. Tapping into RSPs and registered funds is a big piece of that puzzle for us. I mean, there are ways to do it without a fund, but that is kind of the clear, you know, it's a much easier, clearer path and allows people to get access to or invest in, you know, these types of projects that need, you know, $1.7 million, $2 million to close to get into investments like this for $10,000. Right. So it was really a scale. It was really the answer to our desire to scale.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know that totally makes a lot of sense. And, um, Kind of want to dive into current market condition, your thoughts on it. I know we talked about it a little bit, but for someone who's looking to get into multifamily today, what are some sort of tip and tricks that you have? And where are you seeing people talk about distress in the commercial space, right? I'm sure that there's, there's distress in the residential space as well. And I'm sure there's probably some distress in the multifamily space. Like where have things Gone wrong for some operators over the last couple of years. Now that we look back with uh, 2020
2: hindsight vision, mm-hmm. I think the era of low interest rates really kind of caught any kind of getting to higher interest rates where we are today caught a lot of people off guard. Right, like we have some properties we're trying to refinance right now, or we are refi- we're in we're in, the, we're in the CMHC queue now, which is good. That we probably would have waited another year to do if it wasn't for higher interest rates, right? So I think there's a lot of pressure on the financials due to rates. And there's more buildings for sale right now than there ever has been in a really, really long time, right? So if you're looking to get into the space, now is a good time because there's good product on the market and off market. You know, someone trying to get into it today, my advice would be don't be afraid of the interest rates, right? Like that. Do your math. It's just math, right? A deal works or doesn't work. And you just have to underwrite deals with the interest rates of today. The beauty about buying today is that you're buying, you're not going to be surprised. You're, you know what the rates are. For someone that bought 18 months ago or 12 months ago, I think we figured rates were going up. There's very few people that would have predicted they were going up as fast as they are today. Now, I'm also talking about variable as well as the CMB, the Canadian marketable bond, which is what the long-term debt. Is based on in terms of pricing, even that is at like higher than I think it's we're at like, you know, 20 year highs on the CMB, right? So, and again, no one would have predicted that. So, the fact that we are in a higher interest rate environment, I think getting into it, you're in a good place because you're, my sense is it can't get any worse really from an interest rate standpoint. Maybe it goes up a little bit, but you know where we're at. And prices have come down a little bit. So, people that are getting into it, I think the first thing, I see people that are starting kind of spin their wheels a little bit in terms of, you know, which market, what should I buy? How big? Kind of don't even answer that question first. The first thing it's going to be, what do you need this asset to do for you? And by when? Like, just answer that. Forget about market, U.S., Canada, Alberta, Ontario, Saskatchewan. Keep that off the table. Financially, what does it need to do for you? Once you figure that out, then. There's certain markets that will do it and certain markets that won't, that will help at least you uh, navigate the next question that people, well, so to be the first question, where should I invest? Right. If you don't know what the investment needs to do, you have like, you have no idea where to invest. So start with that. And then I think, yeah. And I think, you know, get help, right. You know, you'll, you'll spin your wheels if you don't kind of get help coaching your mentorship or kind of start or have someone to, what I call reach up to, right? Someone that, you know, in your network, that's kind of already done it. That's willing to just kind of answer questions for you along the way. But yeah, I don't think there's, again, you guys know this, right? Like real estate is not about timing the market. I mean, there's certain strategies where it's about timing, but this is a long longevity game, especially multifamily. It's just time in the market. So I don't think there's ever really a bad time. I think you just got to underwrite accordingly. Yeah,
1: it's interesting you, you kind of brought that up because I was literally just about to ask you who the right buyer is for multifamily. I mean, you kind of address that on your own. But I also think it's important. Like, I think a lot of people, the last couple of years, multifamily in, in the world is, has gotten a huge cap rate compression. And as a result, a lot of people have also, it looks easier than it is. Like The, the effort that goes behind what you guys are doing, the amount of due diligence, right? That's all like hard work and hard effort and, and thousands of dollars being spent as well before you find the right deal, right? That I think a lot of people don't get. One question: Have you seen a lot of commercial defaults or like a significant impact as a result of cap rates essentially just going up in certain markets? Like, have you like have you seen a lot of liquidation sales, or are these more so just uh, people repositioning their assets? That, and to that question, where are you seeing the most kind of movement? Is it in like five to ten units, ten to twenty units, twenty plus? Like, what what are you kind of seeing there?
2: Um, So there is there are quick sales happening because, so a couple of reasons, one of the main reasons is that, you know, refinancing, trying to take out existing debt is tough to do because you're essentially, you know, in order to maintain debt coverage ratio, you have to take out, your loan size is reduced because of the interest rate. And so operators that are trying to get out of bridge, high interest paying bridge can't, right? Or they gotta kind of raise a whack load more equity, which maybe they can't. I mean, the capital raising environment right now is also slow. You know, I think it will summer, but also just people are just, you know, have questions, right, about real estate. And so there are big portfolios being liquidated, like significant sizes. I think at all sizes right now that we see that happening.
1: All right. Well, Mike, no, I think that's good. Usually at this point of the uh, the podcast, I'd like to ask. Essentially, where do you see a business growing in the next two to three years? I know we're in some interesting times, but whether it's a fund or obviously a coaching business or realtor business, I'm just kind of serious how you see it growing in the next two
2: to three years. Yeah. I, saw, I guess I answered kind of two parts or two views. One, the investment business and the coaching business. So the investment business, yeah, like our goal, you know, 120, 130 million over the next three years. We're going to, we're just trying to get uh, an acquisition closed up now in the next kind of four weeks or so. We're not going to be buying anything else in 2023. We are in the process of finalizing kind of CMHC refinance. I think we have like, we have three, four on the go right now. And so we just want to get across the finish line on those. Once they're in CMHC, not that you forget about it, it's just, it's a big milestone. And so, you know, it's cash flowing, just financially, it's just in a much more stable place. We're kind of almost there that's really good. And uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of the fund, yeah, we're continuing to, you know, talk to people. The interest level has been really strong. I think the big thing is, is registered funds, registered funds. And the fact that people can direct their, I think in our community, in the real estate investment community, it's known, right? Yeah. You can invest RSPs outside of, I think the sophistication of real estate investment groups, a retail investor doesn't know that, right? So a lot of it's education and, Hey, you don't need to be stuck in mutual funds forever and just follow the, what's going on over there. Cause you know sometimes it's not that good. There's other ways and you can invest in real estate with registered funds. So we're just kind of continuing to pump out a lot of content and education and around that. And, uh, got a really good response, um, ever since doing that. So that's, that's been good. I do have a question on that because there's people
1: that struggle to raise capital we obviously have not done it nearly to the scale that you've done it at, right? out you're trying to raise a couple hundred thousand here and there, right? But um, you're raising millions of dollars. I'm just wondering, like, what do you think is the approach that, what has worked, what hasn't worked? Because I'm sure you guys have tried stuff that, you know, maybe it's not as successful. What um, mm-hmm. kind of wisdom can you share with people on, on that topic?
2: Yeah, yeah. So I think, so my, I mean, my background is marketing and branding. That was the kind of the firm I was So it's a lot of it's marketing and branding, but I think we've tried a bunch of different things. Some things work, some things don't. What's worked the best is just like people are investing typically, at least at our size, and our size is not big, like we're small, billion dollar REITs that operate differently and market differently. But at our size, people are investing in us because they know, they trust or know, and like Mike and I and what we do, right? At the end of the day, right? Like So sharing personal stories behind the scenes, like life, family life, hey, we're real people, right? We're just not like, we're not kind of an ivory tower downtown managing kind of assets with thousands of employees. We're just, you know, a couple guys that have a team that do this because we like it. And so that approach has pushed us beyond our comfort level or comfort zone because you're kind of opening up a little bit more and being a little bit more transparent, a little bit more vulnerable, but people kind of get to know who you are. And so that kind of marketing, that kind of content educational content. Like I like sharing stuff about multifamily that helps with the coaching business as well. That's the fund because people see what we're doing and we're only talking about stuff we do, right? Like a lot of different models, we can only talk about what we know and what we do. And so, you know, social media is obviously a big part of that. But at the end of the day, like if I think about all the investors that invest with us is because they like us and what we're doing and who we stand for and what we stand for. And so like the, our podcast has really helped with that. People listen to what we're talking about and like, okay, I understand. I, I know who they are. You know what they like and dislike and kind of how they think. Cool. Social media, same way. So a lot of content, you know, pushing in a lot of content that way. And um, in the coaching side, like we've probably put over 150 people kind of through some online training, some live online training. And we stopped doing that when we started working on the fund and building it just because we needed to be staying a little bit focused. Uh, I was recently kind of taken on some more one-on-one coaching clients now that the fund is kind of done, but it's now on and it's moving. The systems are going, so we have kind of some time back to work on that too. And um, yeah, I mean, it's people that are looking to scale, kind of need help in the commercial space. A lot of them have invested in real estate before, but just kind of now need some help in commercial. And again, we can only teach what we know. So it's the value-add model, kind of where we're at. The learnings are applicable across Canada with some nuances, of course. But, but yeah, so that's that's been good too. That's been really good. Awesome. And our last question
0: here, it's actually, I'm going to change it up a little bit. So usually we ask what's the biggest risk for a newer investor looking to get into the real estate investing space. So that on top of my next <laughs> question I'm going to ask here that I just remembered was... Um, is it a risk factor that, you know how people talk about the, the the great renewal and mostly on the residential side, but renewals for commercial multifamilies, do they get stress tests? Like, Let's say you're with Desjardins at the end of a three-year loan. Are they looking at all your numbers again and now applying the new 8 or 9% interest rate to calculate the DSCR? And if that's the case, then aren't you liable for giving in a big equity, a big down payment,
2: right? So sort of I guess I do question. Yeah. If it's renewal time, then yeah, if you're coming off like a 2%, right? Like a 2% CMHC and it's five years and you're now like say today, for example, it's um, the CMB is like 4.3. So there's a spread on. So let's say it's five. So you're kind of five. Yeah. You, so you're either going to renew and you either bought it with a lot of equity at the beginning. And so you're okay now or you got to put more equity in now, or you got to sell it. Or the other strategy is you bridge, you know, also bridge at this stage, right? Where you bridge for another 12 months. And that's probably a little bit riskier because you're kind of hoping that CMB does come down in 12 months, and then you can kind of refi at maybe three and a half or 3%. So in commercial, the renewal phase will have an impact for sure people have to decide what are they going to do, right? Sell, raise more equity, or maybe they were they have enough equity in there anyways and they continue to hold. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that totally makes sense because that was off the top of my mind as well with
0: a lot of these smaller multis. They're not in CMHC, right? People are buying them with like Desjardins or like with another credit union and they're raising the rest of the money. They take it once it's stabilized as much as they can stabilize it, put it on a three or four or five-year term and now it might come to renewal. So if they don't have the financials to support it, because again, rents have increased significantly, but the buildings are not going to reflect market rents if they rented it three or four years ago, rates also increased significantly. So that's sort of what I was curious about. And sorry, back to that question there, what is the biggest risk that you see for for
2: newer investors looking to get into the multifamily space? Um, I think right now it's... Um, And underwriting, it all comes down to underwriting. Like underwriting is basically, that's the core skill, right? That's really, you know, the exercise by which you're taking into account all of the potential risks and formulating it numerically. Now, as a new investor, though, you might not know or have an understanding of all the nuances that come into play. So I think a new investor, especially when underwriting today, the mistakes are larger, right? the, uh, the margin for area error is much thinner. And so, you know, have, have someone help you, right? Have someone help. you. And again, I'm not kind of, you know, pitching myself, right. It could be me or somebody else work with someone who's underwriting today. That's the other thing too, right? Work with someone who's underwriting today. Cause like underwriting today is different than it was literally three months ago and even 60 days ago, like things have changed. And the reason why is lenders are changing their risk appetite and it literally is happening month over month. What they're lending on has changed from 30 days ago, right? They're taking more interest reserve. They're adding a little bit more of a buffer. Their debt coverage ratio acceptability is changing, right? And so if you're not doing it kind of right now, those nuances really, really matter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, really well
0: said. And Mark, if people want to connect with you, invest with you, maybe coach under you, or just learn
2: more about your journey in general, how could they best do so? Instagram, Mark underscore Baltazar is a good place. Also on Facebook, LinkedIn, you know, peakmultifamily.ca as our website, but I'm pretty active on social media at mark underscore Baltazar is pretty good place to reach me.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. This was a super fascinating episode. I liked how relevant it was to the times, and I'm sure. So that's one of our biggest things now is that we're focusing on interviewing experts, but experts who are still doing stuff in the current market environment. And I think you embody that. So thank you for sharing your knowledge. If you guys enjoyed this episode, make sure to share it with a friend, comment, leave us a five-star review. It helps bring great guests like Mark out to the podcast. And until next time, everyone, invest smarter and live better. Take care all.